Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. This is Pat Iyer with Legal Nurse Podcast. And today I'm going to be focusing with my guest on a topic that drives a lot of litigation, and that is the prevention of pressure injuries and the appropriate treatment of pressure injuries according to the stages, the types of wounds that are involved. Plaintiff attorneys in particular often seek out legal nurse consultants to find out if this case is a meritorious case. And then the defense attorneys, of course, are saying, can we defend this case? Lydia Myers Corum is my guest. She is an expert in wound care. She has a deep background in home health care, as well as working in a wound clinic and being taught by some of the best people in the field. She also has experience working in acute care facilities. Lydia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. I'm very excited. I know that one of the big things that we get asked about as legal nurse consultants is, was this pressure injury preventable? Did the facility recognize the risk factors? So let's start there with what are the risk factors that can result in skin breakdown? The major risk factors are the lack of nutrition. One of the things I taught my the nurses when they did the Braden scale, which is something that should be done as a risk assessment on any patient coming into whatever healthcare facility it is, whether it's home care, nursing home, or acute care. The one thing they don't take into account is many of these people were ill at home, thereby they didn't receive the proper nutrition. And that is a big risk factor since it is the largest part of the body. The other is immobility. Many of our elderly patients are sitting at home and just sitting, not getting up, not moving, not doing things. And when they're ill, it is even worse. And then, of course, if there's an illness like sepsis, anything that causes uh, taking away from the body what it needs to heal, to work with, and to make the body stay intact, that will have an effect on creating wounds. I know that sometimes attorneys and legal nurse consultants run into situations where those risk factors are present and yet the patient is not cooperative. The nurses try to turn the patient on his side, he flops back on his back. 
He says, I don't want wound care. Leave me alone. How does that factor into when you're looking at risk factors? What you need to do is document that you talked to that patient. What did you tell that patient? What was their response? Also, you need to look at what is going on with that patient. Maybe they're hurting. Maybe you need to get an order for pain meds. Is something going on that makes them not want to turn on their side, but they don't have to be totally on their side. Maybe you can tell them, okay, let me just put this pillow under from your knee to your heel on one leg this time, and let me do it on your other leg the next time. Or maybe just make you a little bit different in your position. And it only has to be a 30-degree turn, not a full turn on the hip. So there's little things we can do to make that happen. But the first thing is to assess why. Why is the patient not doing this? And if the nurse didn't do that, that's not what a prudent nurse would do. So guess what that is? Those are all great reminders of the kinds of documentation that we should be looking for in the medical record to see if there's evidence that the nurses talked to that patient that they might be quick to label as non-compliant and yet not enough problem solving went into looking at that situation to work with the patient so that the patient would be cooperative with those factors. That's right. And I'm always reminded of Christopher Reeves. He had a very bad pressure injury and was told over and over not to do the movie. And he chose to direct that movie and nobody asked him why. And it was because he knew it was going to be his last thing he was going to do. So sometimes we have to look at what are the goals of our patient too. And that's why all the regulatory systems are looking at patient-centered goals. You know, that's you bring up a, a good point, Lydia, because when Christopher Reeve, Reeves developed that pressure sore and he had private duty nurses taking care of him. Some of my defense attorneys said, oh, I can use Christopher Reeve in defending this case because look, somebody with all those resources, private duty nurses still developed a pressure sore. So my client, the nursing home hospital, who could blame them when That's the patient got a pressure sore? That's very true. But also, he was on his bottom for many hours a day doing the movie. More than eight hours a day or 12 hours a day. That's what causes pressure injuries. And no matter how much money you have, if you're in a wheelchair for many, many hours and you're not getting cleaned up and you're not getting, getting repositioned, and all those very important things, you're going to develop something. And also he was paralyzed from the neck down. That also mm -hmm. caused mm -hmm. 
and that causes different metabolism changes in your body. Well, let's switch our focus, Lydia, and talk about some of the mechanical causes of pressure and shear. Mm-hmm. I was taught in nursing school at a time when there were not lift assists, and we got on either side of the patient and dragged them up in bed. What did we- Right. I mean, I can't tell you how much stress I put on my own back by dragging people up in bed and then finding out later that wasn't really a good practice. No, it was. Why? Every time you drag somebody, especially if you're doing it alone, what you're doing is you're leaving the skin the skeleton's moving and the skin is left behind. So you're pulling on that area. That is the sh- that is the shear. The friction isn't as bad as the shear is because that's a pulling of the muscles away from the skin. And that's where you run into the big problems. Mm-hmm. So that's why it was bad. Now also... If we don't check on the patient, like with the casts, if you don't take the casts off and actually look at the skin, you can get skin breakdown long before it's de- it, long before um, you even realize it because you're not checking it every day. The same reason why TEDs are not used today and why they went to SCDs is because nurses did not take up the TEDs and look at the heels. They also did not look at the feet at all by taking TEDs off like they're supposed to every day and cleaning the leg and putting new TEDs on and thereby looking at the skin. So you got a lot of major problems, especially I saw them in home care. Heels that were very black. Well, and not only that, Lydia, I've acted as a med surge expert witness on some cases, and I have a colleague who is actively reviewing cases, and we were commenting just the other day about a case in which the nurses left the TED stockings on for days in a row, and the patient developed a tourniquet effect from the TED and ended up with mm-hmm. an amputated leg from the TED cutting off the circulation. That's right. That can happen. And at NIH, they abolished using TED hose at all in any of their surgeries and their doctors were taught. We went to a patient that had 17 pressure stage ones, but still pressure injuries on his foot on Mm. so many parts of his feet. I didn't know you could fit 17 pressure sores (laughs) on one foot. Well, when you count the toes, the heels, bunions. (laughs) Yeah, it was really bad. So that talked the doctors out of using Ted Hose anymore. Mm Mm-hmm even during surgery. So they started using SCDs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Well, now as we think about our role as a legal nurse consultant, we have to think about we're looking at the medical record after the fact. We've got the end of the story. We know what happened to the person. Now we are trying to reconstruct the events leading up to that outcome. What should we be looking at in the chart in order to put the pieces of this puzzle together? The first thing you need to do is, did they call in a wound care nurse and a wound care consult coordinator or someone in that category? Did they call them in when they saw something? What did they, what did that person chart? What was the outlook of the wound at that time when it was first seen? So kind of like the, um, I heard a talk yesterday. They talked, a doctor talked about before. What was the wound looking, what was the skin looking like before? When they first entered, when they first came into the healthcare facility, then as it would happen at the end of it. Mm -hmm. If a stage two went to a stage four, then we need to investigate what happened in between. Why did it go from a stage two to a stage four? The nursing charting, I'm going to tell you right now, I've read a lot over the years of nursing charting. I can tell you one nurse will chart the same as the next nurse, as the nurse before. I know we're not supposed to do that. But I hate to tell you how many times I've read that. So you may have to read between the lines of the nursing chart. You may have to read what was the documentation of the nurse, nurse's aid. You need to take in account of everything that happened during that time that patient was in that play, in that facility to figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. And you also need to look at the doctor's orders and see what interventions did they put in place. Did they put in a new a mattress, and one a specialty mattress? Did they bring in the dietitian? Did they have a conference on this? A lot of nursing homes have what they call wound conferences, where they bring in a nutrition the dietitian. They bring in physical therapy, they bring in a wound care nurse, they bring in the staff nurse, and they bring in the assist, the director or the assistant nursing director. And they look at this case and make sure they're putting in all the interventions they need to. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't do something where they brought in all the interventions and they didn't change the care plan, then that's the problem right there. Yeah, there are so many factors that have to be looked at. The treatment records, the, the minimum data sheet, if it's a nursing home case, mm -hmm. which for our international listeners is a standardized assessment form that's done at intervals when a patient is admitted to a nursing home and then quarterly and with a change in condition. 
One thing we didn't talk about, Lydia, is we think about what are some of the risk factors, and you brought it up a, a little bit related to Christopher Reeves, is I see people in nursing homes when I have had occasion to go in and visit family members who are sitting in a wheelchair from eight in the morning until seven or eight o'clock at night. Tell us about why that's an issue. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Painless editing and proofreading is a step-by-step -step guide for legal nurse consultants. Where do you begin? As a writer, you feel a great sense of accomplishment when you finish the first draft of your book. You've done what 92% of people say they want to do, but never do. This glow lasts until reality sets in. You have to edit it and panic replaces the glow. You might be saying, I never edited anything big before. I'll lose track of things. Deep down inside, I know that first draft is a mess and I have no idea how to get it into shape. And too often, pain joins panic. Author and public speaker John Allen writes that the Oxford Dictionary describes editing as a process that reduces grown adults to tears in less than 60 seconds. That may sound like an exaggeration, but it captures an essential truth. This book is your baby. How can you mutilate it? I wrote Painless Editing and Proofreading, a step-by-step -step guide for LNCs to help you with both the panic and the pain. As an author of 60 plus books, a book coach and an editor, I know the challenges you face and how to solve them. This book will guide you through the editing process. You'll get step-by-step -step procedures to follow. You'll learn how to take the pain out of editing. Look at the big picture. Determine if your book follows your outline structure. Make sure you have stories in your book. Make the visual appearance attractive. Add and subtract text. Fine tune and proofread. Make your prose lean. Fact check. Do an overall review. You can do this. You've written a book. You've shown that you have what it takes to complete that work. The process of editing will teach you even more about writing. And if you have the right mindset, like I intend to write the best book I can, you can find the process rewarding and even enjoyable. With painless editing and proofreading, a step-by-step -step guide for LNCs, you'll edit your book with ease. Get it today at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. Let's return to the show. The longer they're sitting there, number one, they're not being repositioned. So they're putting pressure always on that area, on their, on that area. Also, very often those wheelchairs do not have specialty cushions. Those specialty cushions are made to help relieve some of the pressure. And I've worked with like Rojos and Stars. And very often, those people don't have those cushions in those chairs. 
when you don't have a way to offload and you don't have any movement or changing of position, you're constantly putting, if you think of it, that would be like putting your thigh over your one thigh over the other and just holding it there for hours and hours and hours. And after a while, you're going to see not only a red mark, you're going to see skin start to break down. You might get a blister. It doesn't take long. Number two, those people rarely are getting diapers changed. Could you imagine putting our babies in a diaper and leaving them for that many hours? The kind of red bottoms they would have. (laughs) Be calling the Division of Youth and Family Services and reporting the parents for neglect. That's right. But we don't do it for our adult population. And they're sitting there in, I'm sure, urine and feces-filled diapers for hours and hours and hours. So that's, you put that, which causes the acid from the urine and the feces to break down the skin and even cause even more damage. Mm Mm-hmm. All that put together, you're you're waiting for something to happen. It's a grim picture, Lydia. I know, and I've seen it in some nursing homes. I've worked in some nursing homes where we were very apt at every hour or every two hours, we'd be grabbing the patients and taking them to their room and changing them clothes, changing their di- the diapers doing whatever we could. Mm-hmm. We started by talking about pressure injuries, and we know that there's different approaches for different types of wounds mm-hmm. at different stages of wounds. Can you give us the overview of what wound care experts are recommending now? Since 1967, We have been looking at moist wound healing. That is our number one priority. We know through tons of research that wounds only heal through moist wound healing. With a stage one, it's getting the pressure off. With a stage two, you're looking for protection. You can use all kinds of products out there today one of my favorites was non-sting skin prep because it also causes like a slick surface and cal- and zinc is called Cavalon Plus. Mm-hmm. That's a really cheap product and very good. Um, but just some kind of protection for stage three and four, then you're getting into what you need to keep it moist. You need to keep it covered as long as possible. Daily wound care, number one, creates a cooling of the wound bed, which you don't want because that decreases the ability for the wound to heal. And number two, it increases the chance of infection, which brings me to wet to dry dressings. Mm-hmm. because gauze was never, never created to be put inside of a wound. 
though we do do it, gauze does not create a moist wound environment. It evaporates very quickly. When you have evaporation, what do you have? Cooling. Number two, 67 layers of gauze was investigated and bacteria entered the, the wound bed even with 67 layers of gauze. Mm. So it's not much protection. Mm -hmm. So, and you're doing that on a daily basis. You're drying out the wound bed and that's when you get that necrotic tissue. Well, and, and I then, can think of doing wet to dry dressings as a staff nurse and seeing that once the dressing is dry and then I remove the dressing, that I'm pulling tissue off right. at the same time, which always made me cringe a little bit, Lydia. Oh, it's even worse for the patient. I, yeah. <laughs> it is very painful. But a lot of nurses believe that wet to dry nurse wet wet to dry dressings are putting moist gauze inside the wound and putting a dry gauze on it. That is not the definition of wet to dry. Mm -hmm. Wet to dry is mainly putting wet gauze in and putting a dressing on top, but then letting it dry and not re-wetting it, but pulling it off. If you do that, then yes, you're do, you're taking good tissue as well. And that's what what to dry was started for was debridement. It's not a debreeder. We have many, many types of debreeders today. We don't need wet to dry dressings. Yes. Let's focus on foot injuries, particularly in diabetic patients, there is a certain amount of confusion about injuries that show up on the foot. Can you help us think through the difference between pressure injuries on the foot and then vascular injuries or injuries caused by changes in the vascular circulation? The, the vascular changes are definitely going to interact with your pressure, but pressure is pressure. A contracted patient whose foot lays on the bed, the side of the foot lays on the bed, and the heel is a part of that laying mm -hmm. on it, then you're going to get a pressure injury on that area. A person whose heels or legs are straight out and laying in a bed constantly without anything to take it the weight off there is going to cause a pressure injury. These can't, these used to be what I know some facilities used to do is say, okay, if the patient's diabetic, is naturally not related to pressure. So it's not going to hit me as far as being a hospital acquired. But it's still, even if the patient's diabetic or artillery in, incapacitate insufficient, they're still going to be labeled as pressure because they are avoidable by offloading. Mm 
in one way or another. For the patient that's contract contracted, that's a lot difficult, but it can be done with some of the uh, devices we have out there today. Do you have any guidance to give us in terms of the use of sheepskin heel protectors versus the boots that are on the market? Um, the sheepskin is actually uh, very good at protecting the areas, especially if they're rubbing together. It kind of gives a cushion between them. Um, there's a lot of good devices that are out there. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't always advise the Mephilex heel protectors because they do create moisture. Mm. And uh, the waffle boots, they're really good. I've used those before and they're really good. But again, you need to put something in there to help get rid of the moisture, to wick off the moisture. Because moisture will do the same thing. The sweat will do the same thing as urine and feces. It's going to break down the skin. Mm. That's a good consideration. Yeah. <laughs> and then if a nurse is treating a foot injury on a diabetic, is there anything different in terms of the standard of care that we should be thinking about? Well, like any arterial, any arterial wound on anything, the knee below, as long as the SCAR is intact, we keep it that way. So the idea is to not use anything moisture related, but to use something that would keep it dry and intact. That in the National Association of Pressure Injuries will tell you too, Anything from the knee below, if it's stable eschar, leave it alone. Mm -hmm. Just keep it dry and intact. The reason being is because you don't want to know what the arterial status is. And once you get rid of that eschar, you're going to cause a major loss of limb. Which we most certainly don't want to do. No. Limbs are very important, even if you're sitting in a wheelchair. If you don't have the whole leg and you're sitting in a wheelchair, you're putting a lot of weight on the hip and you're putting a lot of leg weight on that one leg with the loss. Mm -hmm. And it's going to put, you're going to see pressure injuries on the thigh. Knowing that if you have one amputation, there's a good chance there's going to be a second. Oof. A friend of mine had um, a husband who was diabetic who ended up with foot injuries and pressure sores and had he was on dialysis. And his doctors told him that he was facing bilateral amputations. And he said, not me, let me go, stop the dialysis. I don't want to go through that. It, it took him about a week to die, his choice. And uh, it was hard on her, but she knew what his life would have been like had he 
gone through the amputations. Yeah. And just being a diabetic doesn't mean, not in today's world, not in today's technology, amputation and diabetes does not go together. We have too many advances in our what we can do to salvage. When I read that one time in a case, I was when I was studying my paralegal studies, I took, read a case where the doctor actually said, because the guy had an amputation, he's diabetic. That's a standard of care. Hmm. I, I made sure me hope not. <laughs> it is not. It is not a standard of care. No, let's not make that inevitable. No. Hmm. And they put that in a court court case and I just cringed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I understand why. Yes. (laughs) Well, Lydia, I know that people are going to want to reach out to you as a result of having an opportunity to get to know you on this podcast. What would be the best way for that contact to take place? My email address is Lydia, L-Y-D-I-A dot Myers, M-E-Y-E-R-S, 317 at gmail.com. All right. That's the best way to get a hold of me. <laughs> Lydia dot Myers, M-E-Y-E-R-S, 317 at gmail.com. Yes. And I'm located in California. (laughs) In California. All right. (laughs) And Lydia, thank you so much for being a guest on Legal Nurse Podcast and reminding us of some of those important factors related to risk factors for developing pressure sores, as well as some of the principles of treatment when we are evaluating cases as legal nurse consultants involving pressure injury, you brought to light some things that we should be considering. Yes. Thank you. I'm glad to do this. I'm glad to, I'm just wishing people would become more educated and the loss of limb really bothers me more than anything. Mm-hmm. I am sure. Well, thank you for being a guest on Legal Nurse Podcast. And thank for you, you who, who's been watching this on our YouTube channel, Legal Nurse Business, or listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or other locations. Thank you for listening. Thank you. We encourage you to join our new Facebook group, which is called LNC Business Growth Circle. You'll find that as a group on Facebook. It's a place where legal nurse consultants are hanging out, sharing ideas, giving referrals to each other for work, asking questions. It's a lively and growing community, and I encourage you to join. Thank you so much. And hang on for just another couple minutes to find out who's coming up next. This is Pat Iyer with Lori Morgan, and coming up next, you'll have an opportunity to find out more about a special environment that is filled with challenges and risks, and that is the group home. Lori is a case manager managing four facilities, 
and a total of, I believe, she said 29 residents to look at their healthcare needs and make sure that the facilities and the staff are effectively dealing with those. Lori, what were some of the topics that we covered in your podcast? So some of the topics we talked about today, Pat, were what is a group home? What kind of residents live in those group homes? What kind of staff work in those group homes to support those patients and their educational needs and training that they get? And we also talked about some of the um, dangers to both the staff and the residents in, in the group home. Thank you, Lori. You will learn a lot, dear listener, dear viewer, from this podcast I'm sure you're going to be inspired and it will stir up some questions in your mind. So be sure to check out this podcast coming up next on Legal Nurse Podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pat. as well as the concept of going bare that we see here in the state of Florida, where physicians do not have to carry malpractice insurance, leaving the nurse practitioner sometimes with a somewhat of a target on their back. We also gonna to touch upon some situations that were not so pretty, some fraudulent things that impacted nursing programs and can impact our profession as well. So we look forward to this and many other topics as well. Be sure to come back to Legal Nurse Podcast to hear Dr. Arlene Wright share her concepts, share her knowledge on that list of topics that she just so nicely recited without notes, and you'll get inspired and educated on this role. See you at the next Legal Nurse Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest. <laughs>